Our text of today's sermon is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be going through a lot of scriptures this morning, but particularly verses 56 through 58 here, the word of the living God. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. May he write its truths on our hearts. Join me in prayer. Father, we come before your holy word this morning and we pray that you would allow me to pre present it, to teach it, preach it clearly. Today, Lord, there's so much that uh, is in this text and those surrounding it, and we pray, God, that you truly open our hearts and our eyes, our minds to understand beautiful truth from you. God, use the preaching of your word this hour to strengthen your people, challenge and rebuke when necessary, encourage the hearts that are faint. I pray, O oh God, that you would be with us mightily this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. And you can keep your, your Bible open there. Um, this is part 10 of uh, something we usually don't do. Uh, we usually are going straight through a book of the Bible. We've been in Matthew for quite some time, and we took a, that uh, little hiatus to, to begin the year. The first nine weeks of the year, we've been teaching on biblical worldview, Christian worldview. How do Christians think? And it's an appropriate time to, I believe, do such teaching because we live in an age that is uh, corrupted and confused and getting seemingly just going off the deep end. And um, there's those who claim Christ that are even following, uh, whether it's from emotional involvement or, or ignorance, whatever the reason, just following along with the uh, craziness and the destructiveness of, of the world. Barna, George Barna, who's known for his research, did a, a research report recently in 2021, I believe, where they found multiple results, but one of the results I found most striking was that out of a large mass of self-identified Christians, on going through the survey, they found that only 9% of those who self-identified as Christians actually have a biblical that's quite sobering. You think about the fact that, that it, anyone can self-identify as a Christian. Sometimes the people just think, well, I'm an American, so I'm a Christian, right? Um, and, and so out of that, still only 9% are actually declared to have a world view. Forty-seven years ago, a, a great man named Francis Schaeffer was writing and speaking in incredible ways to these issues we've been going through the last nine weeks. And he wrote a book called How Shall We Then Live? And it's a great question, isn't it? 
How do we live in response to what we're seeing around us, how do, the, the temptations we even face as believers? And in this brilliant book, he analyzed the reasons for the why society was the way it was, and, and he presented in a very accurate way what, what was the only viable alternative. It was the true Christian, true Christian faith, true Christianity, living by the Christian ethic, a joyful acceptance of God's revelation as true truth, total affirmation of what the Bible teaches in its gospel, in its morals, in its values, and in its meaning. And so, appropriately so, we've tried to take these weeks, and I feel like every week we've been doing this, like I've been running way out of time because we could teach a series on every topic. Um, we've gone through, started the, the study on truth, looking at the word of God and how the scripture is our only foundation for truth and that it is the inerrant word of God, the infallible word of God. It is our standard of all things in faith and life. And so and out of the word of God is how we learn how then we should live. And so we have went into studying Genesis, started at the beginning and looked at creation and the covenantal nature of creation and how God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. We, we looked at the, the kingdom of God and throughout the scriptures and how God truly rules and reigns, and yet in the fall, man rebelled against God and shaked his fist, wanting his own autonomy. That's been the struggle for the past, for, for all of history since the fall. We also looked at, to, at uh, something called sphere sovereignty and understanding some particular areas that God delegates his authority in and this great reformational truth that teaches us how to function in the family and what is the authority of the family and what is the authority of the church and what is the authority of the state and how do they interact and how are they separated. We looked at culture, calling, and what is our calling in culture and ultimately how culture is simply worship. The structure is set in Genesis and it's all good and the fall messes everything up and now it's all about the direction. Which direction are we going to take everything in? We looked at glory in every square inch and how all of life is a life of faith and the fight for faith. So everything we think and do matters. Our lives have great purpose. Our bodies have great purpose. And we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that this morning as we look at plotting to victory. Last, last Sunday, several of us had gone to hear Dr. Al Mohler talk on worldview, and it was, it was great hearing a lot of the feedback because everybody was coming up saying, I think I've heard that somewhere before. <laughs> and we were getting a great uh, encapsulation of it, and, and he started off his talk on worldview by giving four questions, and they're fa fantastic questions, and they're answered in the Christian way, but there are also other ways to answer them that the world tries to come up with. A, a, a Christian or, or, or a worldview basically offers answers to these four basic questions. They are this one, where did everything come from? You got to start there, right? Why is there something instead of nothing? This 
answering this question is, is, is uh, it's a question of origins. It, it gives meaning to things. It gives purpose to things. It gives an identity to who are we as people. Secondly, the question is, what's wrong with the world? This is a moral question. How did things get so bad? Why is there evil? Thirdly, what can be done about it? Mankind is always wanting hope. We're hopeless creatures in many ways, and we're clamoring for hope. Is there any hope? Fourthly, and this is today what we're going to do our best to answer, is where is everything going? Where is everything going? And the world and other religions certainly have answers to these questions, but the Christian answer is the only answer that really offers hope. And you can answer these questions very briefly. You've got a little space in your notes there to write the answers in. Let me, can you guess what the first one is? Where did every, everything come from? Creation. Very good. Y'all are getting it. <laughs> Creation. How about this? What's wrong with the world? The fall. Sin. Sin explains everything. It explains why you got in a fight this morning, husband and wife, on the way to church. It explains why you have to deal with the weeds growing in your backyard. It explains everything. The fall. Thirdly, what can be done about it? Redemption. Redemption. These are the three words that we've been talking about that sum up what is a biblical worldview. How do Christians think? And it's the summary of the whole of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption. We know we can't do anything about it, but we know someone who did. God, the second person of of the Trinity in Jesus Christ, came to this earth fully human, fully man, and fully God. And he walked this planet in righteousness, perfect righteousness. No man had ever done that before. He, He succeeded where everyone else failed. And he lives the perfect life, and then he dies upon the cross, a sacrificial death, where on the cross he received the punishment for sin that I deserve, that you deserve. And he was buried in the tomb, and he didn't stay there, did he? On the third day, according to the scriptures, he rose from the dead, conquering forever the power of sin, death, Satan, and hell for all who believe. That's the gospel. This is redemption. He he takes my place. Then there's implications of redemption that go even further. I'm going to add a fourth word for you this morning. Creation, fall, redemption. Where is it all going? Restoration. Restoration. That's where it's all heading. That's what we get to study this morning. Ultimately, another word we could say is victory. Nike. It's the word we studied last week. Overcoming. Victory. This is the Christian destination, point number one. Victory is the Christian destination. We read about in our text... The sting of death being, in, in, in being sin and how the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The context of, of our verses this morning, verses 56 to 58, we just have to go a, a little bit back in the chapter. And in this chapter, Paul lays out to the Corinthian church the gospel beginning in the first verses. He goes through a succinct summary of the gospel, and then he comes to the resurrection, and then he answers a question that some in the day were having trouble with. Well, I don't know if I believe in a resurrection. 
And Paul is answering that question, no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, then our faith is, is it's vain, it's futile, it's nothing. We have nothing. Christianity falls apart, it's foolish. But Christ did rise from the grave, he says. And he goes deeper into what that resurrection, the resurrection of Christ means for us. For those who now follow Christ, for those who have trusted Christ alone for their salvation. And in verse 54, he writes these words, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He's putting things for us as believers in light of the resurrection of Christ and assuring us that we will also have final victory in the resurrection of our own bodies. This perishable thing that puts on, it's, it's a word that literally translates into clothing oneself, like putting clothing on. The perishable puts on the imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality. We take on the characteristics and the virtues and the, and the intentions of Christ himself in his glorified body. Our perishable mortal bodies must take on the characteristics of Christ's resurrected body, is Paul's point. He describes here what happens after the transformation in, in that he mentions up in verse 53. He decisively defeated death on the cross. And, and afterward, God transforms the bodies of believers Christ will finally, completely, and permanently defeat death. And so death itself will be dead, is what Paul is getting at in this passage. Revelation 21.4, death shall be no more. This will climactically fulfill, according to what Paul writes here, two Old Testament passages. The first is Isaiah 25, which says in verse 8, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Paul says it this way in verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. He's loosely quoting Isaiah 25.8. And in victory here, as he mentions in Corinthians, is a Greek phrase that ultimately is an idiom for the Hebrew term that reads forever in Isaiah 25.8. He says it's the same thing. Hosea 13.14 says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, which was the realm of the dead. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? And so Paul is reading this, these passages about God's judging Israel in light of, of Christ's sting-absorbing death. And he, and he adapts Hosea 13, 14 to, to really to personally mock death to throw it back in death's face. Death will die because Christ has died and risen again. And so in verse 56, he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Paul writes about this elsewhere, and he takes it even a bit deeper in Romans 5.12 when he says that sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so by, by permanently defeating death, Christ also permanently defeats sin, is what he's saying. Then he, he explains in verse 56 that the sting of death is sin, that sin could not, it, it could not seduce Adam and Eve until God issued his first law for them. Right? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They received this, this law, and that law energized sin by giving it death-dealing power. And this law, sin, death, triad, if you will, began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And in his letter to the Romans, Paul begins to clar clarify even further what he means here. In Romans 3.20, he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. In verse five, or chapter 5, verse 13 of Romans, sin is not counted where there is no law. The law enables sin to abound, according to what Paul writes in Romans. The law brings wrath. The, the letter kills. The law, according to Paul, is the ministry of death and the, and the ministry of condemnation, he wrote in 2 Corinthians. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. the law bad? We know Paul says certainly not, but sin, sin taking advantage of the law turns it and uses it against us. And so Christ, by defeating sin permanently, also permanently ensures that God's law is only life-giving for his people now. Not sin empowering. This is why Paul can exclaim with thanksgiving in verse 57, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In, in contrast to the sting of death and the power of sin, we're thanking God for this final, complete, and permanent defeat of death by the means of Christ dying for our sins and rising from the dead. Again, he had already exclaimed that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there's no Christianity. It's, it's just silliness, it's just foolishness. But in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes these words, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Fact, sure, history, settled, done. And in that he says, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Gloriously, we see in these truths that Jesus fulfills all of God's purposes for humanity. In Psalm 8, 
We're told that human beings were created to rule over creation in, in a way that displays God's glory. That's what Adam and Eve were created to do. Verse 5 of Psalm 8 says, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. We know in the fall that sin and death distorted this good design of God. So that instead of living for God's glory, we, we live for the glory of ourselves. And only in Christ Only in Jesus, who's conquered these powers, have we seen God's design faithfully and perfectly expressed. And so what Paul is getting at here, he's giving us hope for our future. Because at his return, we're going to witness two final acts of faithfulness. Death, Jesus is going to demonstrate his complete power over death as the last enemy And he will display God's glory by delivering the kingdom to God the Father. Just like we see at the cross where the transfer took place, where the sins of those who trust Christ, who believe in Christ, were transferred and put on him. We we will once again see this power of Christ as as, as, as he is, uh, his perfect righteousness is given to his people. This pattern that happens in the regenerating work of God, that that governs our lives as those who part of a new humanity, a new creation that God has made in Christ. So what does this mean? What does this first fruits mean? We see that Christ is the first fruits risen from the dead. It means that his resurrection was really this the beginning. It It was in actuality a a small part of the general resurrection. We oftentimes don't see it that way. But Paul wants to hammer it home and he wants us to get the order right. You will rise only because Christ has risen. You will be resurrected because Christ has risen. The first fruits come first and then comes the general harvest using Paul's illustration which occurs at his coming. So we have to get the image right. To understand this, this has implications. This has worldview implications on how we live every day. We have oftentimes in the Christian world a a false understanding or a false picture of of human history. Even among among many Orthodox Christians. We might believe in the historicity of the resurrection of Christ. But we oftentimes don't understand what Paul is trying to get across here. Because we think that human history is basically the same, at least from the fall all the way up until the second coming, that things go on pretty much as they always have. In in the middle of this grim history, God put the cross. And he breaks history in two, and and we have the cross, and then we have the resurrection. And the resurrection is this complete anomaly in an unchanging world or an unchanged world. This cross and resurrection, certainly we know that the gospel, which means we can be saved, which many Christians then say it means that in turn we'll go to heaven when we die. And technically, that's true, right? But try this image instead. 
At the fall, human history became a movie that we're watching in like old first days of television, grainy, black and white, scratchy, old film. Human history became like that movie, but when Christ rose from the grave, this blinding light appeared at that place. And from that one place, some amazing things started to happen. Not necessarily in the plot lines of the story, but in the nature of the story itself. And all of a sudden, color begins to spread out from that resurrection point, and, and the graininess starts slowly disappearing, and it's gradually transformed into some kind of this magnificent 4K, 4,000K HD TV. becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. I've seen things like this, analogies like this before. If, if, if you're a Narnia fan like I am, you remember the point in Narnia where Aslan breathes on the stone statues? They become alive. They all come back to life. That's the kind of image we should have when we think about the resurrection of Christ and what's ahead. There should be this expectation, this hope, this clarity, this understanding. See, the resurrection was the central event of all of history. It actually defines history and it establishes the trajectory of the rest of the story, of everything that is coming. Why do I teach this? Because we, don't, we, we often stop short and we leave our Christian thinking in the interim state. What is that? We're distracted by going to heaven. And you think, well, isn't that a wonderful thing? It's a marvelous thing. It's an amazing thing. But that's not the final destination. I think we've gotten distracted because of our individualistic way of thinking in our culture. We, we look at, at this harvest metaphor, and instead of thinking of the harvest, we're focused on, on my little stalk of wheat. And we find ourselves leaving out the story of, of the harvest. But if we started with the harvest, here's the great thing, our own stalk's not going to get left out. When we die... Before the harvest of all history, what happens to us? We go to be with the Lord, right? Be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. But over time, the intermediate state, as it's called, it's, it's a very temporary state of affairs, but somehow that has become our central hope. You know, we, 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 we call it going to heaven. We've drifted into really a, a very Greek philosophical-minded view and idea of the immortality of the soul. Just going to drift up to some float in a bodiless existence on clouds in another heavenly dimension somewhere. And what we lose in this is we lose the Hebraic truth of the resurrection of the dead. The Bible doesn't generally speak in our popular way of going to heaven when we die. 
Not the way we speak of it. And again, technically, that's not wrong. But the problem is that the interim state has become the overarching paradigm for, for many Christians today. Replacing the biblical hope of the new heaven and the new earth. We look to heaven, certainly. Not because though, not so much because that's where we're going once we're saved, but because that's where our salvation is actually coming from. Look at Philippians 2, verse 20 and 21. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is incredible power. This is Paul telling the Philippians that there's a new ordinary. <laughs> the resurrection isn't simply a peculiar event in, in an old and decaying world. It's, it's the defining event of a new creation. The new heavens and the new earth, it's the first fruits of what is to come, of our victory, our final victory, final destination. It's a prototype, if you will, of all things made new. And it includes a body, not some spirit floating somewhere. It's corporeal. Resurrection life is the hope. It's the new normal, if you will, in our age what we look forward to. Jesus rose again. Jesus reigns and Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And that church is victory. Victory is certain. Hope is sure. Because Christ has risen from the dead. So how do Christians answer that question? Where is everything heading? It's heading to victory. It's heading to a new heaven and a new earth according to the scriptures. John MacArthur said, the Christian's ultimate hope and destination is not the current heaven, but the new earth. There's truth. The new earth is going to be the eternal dwelling place of believers in Jesus Christ. The new earth and the new heavens, sometimes referred to as the eternal state. We mentioned the intermediate state. This is the eternal state. This is forever. This is where it's going. There's a lot of mystery about it, but Scripture does give us some details of the new heavens and the new earth. The current heavens and earth have, have been long subject to God's curse because of sin in the fall. We read in Romans 8 that all creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. It's awaiting the fulfillment of God's plan and, and the children of God to be revealed. Mark 13, 31 tells us that heaven and earth will pass away and, and they will be replaced by the new heavens and the new earth according to Scripture. And at that time, the Lord, the Lord seated on his throne says, I am making everything new. Revelation 21. And in in the new creation, sin is totally eradicated. 
No more curse, according to Revelation 22.3. What a glorious hope. What a beautiful promise. Isaiah 65.17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Isaiah 66, 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But Peter tells us that the, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be where righteousness lives Isaiah has said the former things are not going to be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Things will be completely new. And the old order of things with, with all of the sorrow and tragedy and sadness that come along with it is going to be gone. Revelation 21, 1 through 5, listen to this beautiful picture. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is victory. This is the Christian destination. Where are we going? Where's it all going? This is where it's going. New earth, free from sin, free from evil, free from sickness. Some of your legs won't hurt. Dad, you'll be able to see. Everything broken, be healed, restored. No more death. Sting, gone. It's going to be beautiful. Earth's already beautiful, isn't it? Think about some of the vistas that we get to see. We live in San Diego. <laughs> Of our sunsets, sky turns this bright orange, and we see hues of yellow, light orange, and just glorious. Imagine, imagine a curseless new earth. It'll be earth as God originally intended it to be. It'll be Eden restored. God's dwelling place will be with us. He will wipe away every tear. 
So yes, death, yes, death is an enemy, but the Christian knows that death has been defeated. For the Christian, death is still ugly. But there's a sense of glory in understanding that you get to be with the Lord, but that's not the end. Christ returns. The final day, he will restore, recreate. All things will be made new. It helps us understand how and why Paul would live the way he lived, the Apostle Paul. Why he would say things like Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. To die, it's gain. Why in the midst of pain and suffering and persecution, Paul could say in Romans 8.37, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors. We're super conquerors through him who loved us. And what a plan, what a plan of God that, that in the midst of creation glorifying himself as the purpose of it all, that then he would bring us into his plan to be a part of redemption, to be able to open our mouths and to share this glorious gospel and to give hope to spread hope to a desperately dying world, to speak of, of this glorious destination and to offer it as a gift of God by grace through faith, to call repentance of, to people to repent of sin, which is life-giving and freeing. Because Christ is victor. All in Christ are victors. This is why Paul could write in response to Genesis 3.15, remember the, the first gospel that was given in Genesis right after the fall? How gracious of God, how kind of God. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the, the, the serpent, Satan, the deceiver. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Yeah, you're going to bite him and he's going to die, but he's going to rise again from the dead and conquer it forever. And in that, that's a first fruits. That's this, the first basket. After that is coming a harvest so vast you, you can't understand. It's all my people. All my people resurrected. All my people with me in a recreated earth. This is why Paul can tell the Romans in chapter 16, 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Christ is the crusher, but he includes even the Romans. I'm going to put them under your feet. I'm a victor, and because I'm a victor, you're victorious. It's beautiful. It's incredible. Where's everything going? How do we understand it from a worldview perspective? Christian worldview is victory. That's the destination. That's where we're heading. So how do we live? We talked about that last week. We live by faith. But I got one more thing for you in point two. Faithful plotting. How do you spend the rest of your days? Faithful plotting is the Christian responsibility. That word responsibility, it's rooted in the word response, the English word, right? What is the response to such glory? What is the response to such hope? What is the response to such a promise that's ahead for us? The response is to live in victory. 
Because not only is victory the, the destination, but victory is also the journey. We saw that last week in, in, in Jesus' faithful admonition to the seven churches of Revelation. To he who conquers, to he who overcomes, to he who conquers. To he, it's, it's all the same word. To he who is the victor. Victory is the Christian journey. And that journey is one of faith. And that journey of faith is, is plotting. See, what is plotting? It's a word I've grown to like. <laughs> we don't use it a lot, but it's a really good word, and I think it helps us. Uh, Noah Webster, uh, uh, um, in his 1828 dictionary, said plotting is slow movement with steadiness or persevering industry, movement and steady diligence. It's industrious, it's diligent, but slow in contrivance or execution. The picture is consistency. The picture is it just keeps going like the energizing bunny, plodding and plodding and plodding and plodding and plodding. This is the response aspects of plodding that I see in verse 58 of our text. In light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that that means for his people who will also be resurrected and are heading to a new heaven and a new earth, therefore, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's saying, Christians, you can endure because you know that everything you do in Christ is valuable. Paul affectionately addresses them. My dear brothers and sisters, I need you to know this truth so you know how to live. I would rephrase that and say, so you know how to plod. The three commands he gives, they're, they're different ways of exhorting believers to persevere, to, to faithfully plod in life and through life. Be steadfast, he says. It translates a word that means to, to, to be firmly or solidly in place, to stand and to stand in the truth of the gospel, in the truth of the resurrection. Stand firm. Standing firm entails affirming that God will resurrect the bodies of dead believers was one of their questions that he's answering in chapter 15. He's steadfast. He says, be immovable. Nothing must move the Christian, including those who would come with false teaching, saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul says, don't stray. Be immovable. Then he says, Always abounding. It's a word, word that means to be outstanding, to, to be excellent. Believers must always excel in their labor, to use Paul's word. It's, it's a word that means regular activity. It includes your work, your occupation, your vocation. It includes any task that's in front of you. Every task that, that God calls a believer to do should be done in the Lord and as unto the Lord for his glory. And of course, that means 
preaching and teaching. And of course, it means evangelizing and praying and reading the scriptures and building up the church. All of this is the work of the Lord. But as we've already talked about, the work of the Lord includes your vocation, your calling, the responsibilities you have in, in, in various areas of your life as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a child, as a church member, as a business owner, as an employee, as a citizen, as a neighbor, all of these different vocations are to be done abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Why be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord? Paul says, because your labor is not in vain. Penos is, is the Greek word. It's, it means useless, devoid of any value. Your work is never worthless in the Lord. One of the glories uh, effects of the gospel is the gospel combats hopelessness. It, it gives purpose to our daily endeavors. It helps us by the grace of God to glorify him no matter what we're doing. Your work has meaning. We got to understand that. So I think of Ronnie, when you're selling or fixing medical equipment, Doing it as unto the Lord, serving God's people all over. God, the image bearers, serving image bearers all over, being a part of their healing and in, in, in all of the process that comes with it. You're not just doing something minimal and meaningless. If we're building something in construction, if you're an accountant dealing with numbers and working on uh, code as an engineer, whatever God is calling you to do, you do it as an act of worship to God. It's never worthless. Do it by faith. Because Christian victory is faith. Christian success is faith. We often get it wrong. We think of the end result and that's going to be our success and, and we struggle through it. I'm saying the struggle is the victory. Are you fighting? Are you in the fight? As we're transformed by the gospel, as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we plod. We plod one step at a time, one day at a time, as unto the Lord. Second Peter 3, or excuse me, 1, verse 3. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Think of your situation. Think of your struggle. Is there anything that doesn't fall under all things that pertain to life and godliness? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through the promises of God, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. What a glorious picture, right? What a beautiful calling. He's given you everything you need, Christian. 
all his divine power to, to live life, to be godly through the knowledge of Christ. And so because of that, because of who he is and what he's done and what he's given you, for this very reason, verse 5, make every effort. There's a response demanded of the Christian, intrinsic in being a Christian. Faith acts. It does. Faith works. And so he says you, you make every effort to, to supplement. It's a word that means to, to supply or to furnish, to f- and, and to furnish at your own expense. So here's the picture. God has made a house for you. It has a perfect foundation. He's, pu- he's built it for you, and he's put you in it, and he says, now get to work and furnish it. I've already given you the ability. I've empowered you. There's a cost to it. Pay the, pay the fee. Work. Do the effort. I thought we're not saved by works. We're not. <laughs> but saving faith works. It does. And so he says, for, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. With what? With virtue. With virtue. Virtue means moral, intellectual, or even physical excellence. Be excellent. In a, I wasn't going to say that because I kept thinking of Bill and Ted. And if Bill and Ted is on your mind after I said that, Redeem it, okay? Redeem it with me. <laughs> but be excellent, truly. Be excellent in, in everything you do. Add to your faith virtue. Add to virtue knowledge. That's relational knowledge of a person in Jesus Christ. And in addition, it's a knowledge of the truths that must be known and acted upon. To knowledge, add self-control. Restraining your emotions, your feelings, not being feeling-driven, and and impulses, controlling those by the power of the Spirit, controlling your desires that are of the flesh. It's not mastery of ourselves by our own power. It's submission to God. Submission and surrender of complete control the Holy Spirit. Then he says, add to self-control steadfastness. It's that ability, that capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of of difficulty. It's what we saw again in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 to these churches that God had different words for each of them, but he kept saying, endure to the end. Endure to the end. The steadfastness, add godliness. It's a Godward orientation of life that is expressed outwardly through our thoughts, our feelings, our attitudes, our speech, our actions. Godliness should characterize our lives as believers. Godliness, he says, add brotherly affection. We should love one another. We should truly be kind and gracious to one another. Brotherly affection, add love. Biblical love is not a feeling that is provoked by the loveliness of its object. That's the world's definition of love. That's the world's understanding of love. Not about how lovely the object is. Biblical love is a commitment of the heart, of the mind, of the soul to pursue what is best for the one that is loved. 
Christians are called to love. And our love for others should reflect the self-sacrificial love of Christ who laid down his life we might come to the Father. Plotting all of this in a mentality of slow, steady, one night at a, one day at a time, one thing at a time, just keeps going on and on and on and on, faithfully and faithfully, is a major challenge. Because we live in a culture that is dominated by a mentality that wants big things done really fast and famously, along with the selfie. Make sure everybody knows. It's our culture. But plotting, faithfully plotting, faithful life in Christ is mostly small things that are done slowly, consistently, over long periods of time, with nobody noticing. But when we have a Christian worldview, we will be faithful plotters. There's been a lot of talk the last weeks about the, uh, the thing that was going on there at Asbury University College, Bible, that a lot of people are talking about. And I don't know a lot about it. I saw stuff on social media and videos here and there, and I heard positives and I heard negatives. And, and I obviously was not there. I, I'm a little cautious on hearing anything from the outside world, or even from Christians sometimes, <laughs> um, as far as like, is it good or bad or what? And, and the things I saw are people were singing about Jesus, praise the Lord. Heard some people say that there was a lot of repentance preached, praise the Lord. There was true repentance happening, praise the Lord. I do have a little um, part of me that's a, that can be a bit skeptical, mainly because I was a youth pastor for a lot of years. <laughs> And I worked with a lot of teenagers back in the day, and I saw a lot of really energetic singing to Jesus. And then, like, right after the group was over, there was a lot of things going on not so good by the same singers behind the building type of thing. <laughs> and so worship's much more than a song. And, and at the same time, how great it is that people would gather to sing to Christ and that we be committed to falling on their faces and worshiping him and repenting of sin. I say praise God anytime Christ is preached. Praise the Lord. And I hope it's revival. Why is it? Here's my thought. It's going to be a while before we would know. Because if those young people that were a part of that, that repented, if, 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 they will, if those young men will love their wives when they get married someday, as Christ loves them, faithfully, day in, day out. If 
Those young people will pray, will get on their knees when they're alone and nobody else is around. They'll open their Bible when nobody's around and they'll put their noses in it and keep it in there for the rest of their lives. God did a work. But just because we see any type of level of emotion, and I'm not anti-emotion, I love, I'm very emotional myself. I can't help sometimes but respond my thoughts of the glory of God in an emotional way. But you don't live life on that. Christians live life on truth. We plod. Even when we don't feel like it, we plod. Christian life is a walk. And it's not a walk. Think of the, the necessarily the Marathon, I ran a marathon, half marathon last year, and they've got places where people are clapping for you at a certain point. Yeah, keep going, keep going. And it was kind of cool, keep you going. That's not always the picture of the Christian life, is it? You're doing a lot of things in your closet. You're doing a lot of things that nobody notices, and you have to be okay with that. You have to take joy in serving the Lord. Christian life is a walk, and it's a long walk at that, and that's all over the scriptures. And so, according to Galatians 6, 9, sometimes on a walk, you get tired, so don't grow weary doing good. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Harvest will come. Christian destination is victory. You're going to have a new body, transformed like Christ's, glorified. You're going to be on a new, in a new earth, living and serving your God forever, doing his good work forever, free from sin, free from pain, free from tears. It's a glorious picture. So don't, don't grow weary. Applaud. John Piper wrote a biographical book called The Roots of Endurance, or he gave biographical sketches of guys like William Wilberforce and others. And in the preface to that book, he, he encourages Christians to be coronary Christians, not adrenaline Christians. See, adrenaline is great, right? It's the thing that, you know, like the adrenaline, that you get the rush when you see, like, I don't know if you, you know, Somebody's stuck under the piano, right? All of a sudden, ah, you, oh, you get to lift it. Where if you didn't have that rush of adrenaline, you couldn't do that. And a lot of times as Christians, we're like that. We just need this, we need this burst. And, but here's the thing with adrenaline, it always crashes, doesn't it? He said, we need more Christians that are coronary Christians. What does that mean? It's like a heartbeat. Think of your heart. Your heart's, praise God, has been lub-dubbing. Consistently, for however long you've been alive. And, and if, if you have a bad day or if the heart has a bad day, it doesn't just say, you know what, I'm going to take the day off. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> it just keeps, the heart plods through your life. Let's be like the heart. Let's be coronary Christians in how we live our lives.
Dale Tackett, who years and years ago, we went through this program called the Truth Project. We're a part of that. And um, Dr. Dale Tackett, in that, said these words, and I think they're good questions to just end with, to think about. He asked, in considering Christian worldview, do you really believe that what you really believe is really real? When we speak of the new heaven and the new earth, do you kind of think, oh, that's cool? Do you really believe that what you really believe is really real? Because if you do, it will shape, form, change how you respond in all areas of Schaefer asked, how should we then live? We should live understanding that the word of God, God has spoken. His word is true. Created us in his image. Fell, not only by deed, but by nature. We're all sinners. We can be redeemed grace through faith in Christ alone. As redeemed people, heading full restoration. And until then, let's plod.